Hello and welcome to the first Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. In this episode, I will be discussing Protecting the Front Line. This title was inspired by a need to get across a clear idea of what is meant by self-protection training. Clarity is a big part of today's theme, as I think there's a lot of confusion regarding the topic of self-protection. This episode shouldn't be considered to be an in-depth look at self-protection, but more a reflection on the different misunderstandings I've come across when the topic is raised. I address a few questions too. Do students want to learn self-protection? Do martial artists want to teach self-protection? What is self-protection? Should martial arts just be about self-protection? And a few others. I hope you enjoy the show. One of the most distinguishing features of a self-defence course is an instructor's insistence that the rulebook needs to be thrown away. He tends to do this to make a distinction between the course and any other martial arts class. So, if you're part of a traditional martial arts class, then it's back to street clothes, no rituals, and all the niceties of custom need to be forgotten. If you're part of a combat sport club, then the rules of a competition need to be forgotten. There are many quotes either from the battlefield or the sporting arena that can testify to the fact that violence is chaos. I often think of the Mike Tyson quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. It's actually an update of Helmuth von Malt, the elders, no plan of operations extends with any certainty beyond the first contact with the main hostile force. Both versions reflect the need to be adaptive and the acceptance of the unknowable. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that inside and outside the subculture of martial arts, individuals get lost. We know a clinical approach will yield the best results, but we also instinctively know there's a vast void of unpredictability. When it comes to the business of protecting one's personal front line, that is the study of self-protection, confusion reigns. Today I want to talk to you about that confusion. I want to explore why there is so much misunderstanding when it comes to civilian self-protection. And regardless of whether you're an experienced teacher or student, beginner of the martial arts, why I believe it's important to be clear on the matter. A few years ago, I received a circular email from a martial arts business agency. At the time, I recall feeling a particular sense of smug satisfaction. What marked the circular out from many others they sent out to their clients was it appeared to contain evidence that supported an argument I'd made to them years beforehand in our first meeting. The email contained the results of a survey they'd put out nationwide to martial arts students. Data produced from the survey was supposed to help their clients' martial arts businesses by helping teachers get a better understanding of what their customers expected, wanted and liked. My feeling of vindication was aroused by the results produced from the first question on the survey. Why did you take up martial arts? The overwhelmingly popular response to this question was self-defence. I recalled my first meeting with the agency when I was setting myself up in the business of running a martial arts club. I argued that I wanted to promote the self-protection aspect of my classes. After all, this formed the foundation of what I intended to teach. The agency had argued that students did not come to martial arts classes to learn self-protection or self-defence. Fitness, sport, confidence and fun were far more appealing themes that should be addressed in my marketing. They were particularly unhappy with my decision to teach realistic self-defence to children. Here they argued I was undermining parents who believed they were responsible for their child's safety education, be it protection from bullies or protection from abduction. Advertising this at the forefront of a martial arts service challenged the parents' perceived authority or forced them to face uncomfortable truths about the world. Now, the agent's own data appeared to reveal what I had said all those years previously. However, this survey information did not necessarily push out the agency's view. 
After all, the majority of martial arts clubs the world over have done and still do follow the advice that was offered to me. The problem is that the perception the average person has about self-protection is often somewhat misguided. These days I teach private lessons. They either come in the form of small group training, one-to-one personal training or workshops and seminars. This keeps my teaching quite specialised. I often send out a questionnaire before any training begins so that both student and teacher are better prepared for the lesson. A good number of students will say that they want self-defence or self-protection from their training. However, not all students are happy with the way this sort of training is defined. I take my definition of self-protection from Motig and Peter Constantine. I learned it first from Motig via his hard target course when I was training to become a hard target instructor and also his SSTTN course, as well, um, which was the uh, predecessor to hard target. Uh, Peter Constantine is the head of the British Combat Association and also the author of a book called Streetwise, where this definition I'm about to describe to you comes from. Self-protection can be divided up into personal security, also known as soft skills or non-physical skills, and self-defence, also known as hard skills or physical skills. Of the two, any responsible self-protection teacher will tell you that the personal security part is the most important. This comprises of attitude, situational awareness, understanding the physiology of fear and aggression, a small amount of specific and workable information on criminal psychology and criminology in relation to offender profiling and victim selection, some conflict management skills, some lay knowledge of behavioural science, and the all-important legal side. Now, to the average beginner student, all of this can seem quite daunting. Sadly, it puts off the average person, especially when they attract what attracted them to self-defence in the first place with this view that they would be learning a few clever tricks to get themselves out of a sticky situation, or they'd just be learning how to fight. The self-defence part, that is for physical skills, are short and simple. They should be low maintenance in nature. That is so that once they've been taught a few times, clients will be able to take the techniques home and practice them effectively. Needless to say, the techniques should have a high percentage of success with minimal risk to the user. So, if you expected to be learning some flamboyant or aesthetically pleasing moves, you're likely to be disappointed. You aren't going to get a lot in the way of clever tricks either. All the low maintenance, high percentage techniques are straightforward, commonsensical and require a reasonable amount of practice. Put it this way, I wouldn't advise attempting to show them off on your father-in-law at the next barbecue. I wrote an essay last year that covered the three areas of martial arts I often find are missing from most teaching programmes. CSI, which is an acronym for Clarification, Scepticism and Individuality. Under the clarification section, I discussed an episode where a group of my clients had booked me to teach a fitness-orientated martial arts program. They'd asked what programs I taught, and although they showed clear interest in wanting to learn self-protection, the soft skills idea put them off. I offer combat conditioning as one of my services, and it appeared that the small group's objectives were to get fitter whilst doing martial arts. The skills I teach in such a course are pragmatic, but training isn't focused on self-protection or sport. The exercises are certainly appropriate as a form of supplement for my other courses, but the objective is on getting in better condition. As I explained in my essay, everyone seemed happy with the lessons. However, one evening after class, I overheard the group discussing on what they thought they were now capable of doing if someone tried to attack them. My class had decided they were learning self-protection regardless of what I had said. The incident was a good lesson to me. I've always been driven by a desire to be honest with my students. As I explained in CSI, I'm against the idea that a martial arts club should oversell itself on being able to provide everything to everyone. Too many students have attended a class under the impression that they were going to learn how to protect themselves, only to have their objective forcibly obscured. 
The student waits patiently as he learns a series of abstract movements that no longer have a functional purpose other than to pass a grading examination, or he trains diligently for a tournament, all the while thinking he's learning how to defend himself. I always want clients to be clear about what they're being taught. However, I don't believe self-protection needs to be a lifelong endeavour. My observation across a myriad of different martial arts styles, systems, schools and teachers, both from the subculture of today and from a historical perspective, is that people like to expand upon, ritualise and change. This is fine if you're trained specifically in an art or a sport. Art always changes and artists constantly seek to expand their abilities. Likewise, sports evolve. Both can be lifelong endeavours. Self-protection training, by contrast, should be contained and should be limited. In this respect, a good self-defence course can be compared to a good first aid course. Both seek to train civilians with no prior learning in life-preserving skills. In most cases, these skills are learnt in case of an emergency. They aren't learnt as a job role. The civilian in a first aid course isn't usually learning to become a paramedic. They're usually content to train in a 10-hour first aid course and then try the course again at some time in the future as a refresher or to update their knowledge on the subject. I think it's a good idea in the intervening time for first aiders to try to go over the material they've learned and do the appropriate research, but this isn't going to be a hobby that they pursue every single week. The same should apply to self-protection, and I believe the danger of making self-protection the entirety of one's martial arts training is that a stylization will inevitably occur. Techniques will develop and evolve under training conditions rather than be gleaned from the proverbial front line. It is inevitable that this will happen, often in a very cult-like way, with a teacher adopting the persona of an overly influential guru, ensuring their mark is all over the material being taught. Compare that to the military, where information is changed through the influence of constant battle. You don't get the same sort of thing in your typical self-defence class or your typical martial arts class, where everything is being done within a club environment. This isn't to say that a self-defence student shouldn't study any extra skills once their initial course is over. A first aider might wish to pursue some more advanced knowledge and do a three-day course or a course more specific to their working environment, such as a first aid for children or animals. Likewise, there are self-defense bolt-on courses that specifically deal with edged or blunt weapons or firearms. These courses retain the restricted integrity of self-defense by being contained and having a designated cut-off point once the material is confirmed. However, what often happens in self-protection is the student likes the feel that controlled violence and child aggression provides. There is nothing wrong in this, and there's no reason why this shouldn't be explored within martial arts or combat sports. In fact, I believe it's very healthy, especially when these pursuits can be done without the constant concern of whether the techniques being trained can be immediately applied in a self-defence situation. What I often do with clients who have completed a self-protection course, and I've trained in one of my martial arts cross-training courses, is to go back to the self-defence aspect at the basic course's end. So, for example, at the end of a Muay Thai course, we would look at how techniques from the sport can be applied to self-defence. Clients often find that the martial art course has worked as a great form of attribute training for their original self-protection course. This way, they can see what attributes they have gained from their training and how they apply it to self-defence. However, the majority of these courses are focused on the sporting or artistic objective, which I find to be enriching, challenging, healthy and unashamedly fun. That's my personal approach to coaching these days, but I've seen some great examples of other schools following similar principles when they teach a holistic or comprehensive martial arts system. They ensure that self-protection work is done early on or at least trained alongside the art's fundamental techniques. Then once the teacher is satisfied that enough basic self-protection has been taught, he tells the class that they will now explore other aspects of the martial art. A good teacher should then be able to explain how to switch between different training mindsets and also how different areas can benefit each other. The next area of contention I see troubling people is more of an internal one. 
This comes in the form of confusing short-term self-protection thinking with long-term self-protection thinking. This problem is closely related to the bigger world issue of confusing what is with what should be. I like to get across my view on this mental aspect of self-protection training early on. Despite my strong support of open-mindedness in martial arts defined by my approach to cross-training, there are certain constants I observe and use as my guide. Short-term self-protection deals with the realities of modern-day violence. It does not judge from a moral perspective, even though the very act of applying self-protection tactics is a judgment call in its own right. It's a clinical approach to preserving the life and well-being of an individual or individuals from interpersonal violence. The main motive is to avoid or limit injury to those who have been targeted by someone who intends to inflict physical harm. Efficiency and legality should be the strong guiding principles in the selection of strategies and tactics. The issue of what is, in such instances, accepts the harsh reality that there are violent human predators in the world and uses this knowledge to responsibly prepare law-abiding people to protect themselves. Such predators can be motivated by greed, lust, prejudice, displaced aggression, desperation and a number of mental disorders. These various motivations are only of interest insofar as the way they might inform a short-term self-protection strategy. For example, a person might choose not to wear expensive clothes or carry much cash in an area with a reputation for mugging. Long-term self-protection deals with reducing crime rates by various means. An individual might have some involvement with a number of charities that work towards reducing poverty, combating addiction, educating more people against prejudice, or simply working closer with authorities and local neighbourhoods to create safer communities. The issue of what should be in this particular instance seeks to make the world a better place by promoting fairness, supporting the community and peaceful solutions. Knowledge on the various types of crime is of interest to better tackle their causes at the root and to create environments that don't foster such violent criminality. Both approaches can, and I would argue should be, tackled in harmony. Long term will produce the best results and handles a much bigger picture. However, short term always pushes out long term, just as hard skills always push out soft skills. Dealing with a crisis, especially one that involves interpersonal violence, requires immediate, fast-working solutions. Everything else at that time is obsolete. All your pre-fight personal security has either failed you or been discarded once a physical fight is upon you. As to your plans for a safer and more peaceful neighbourhood, they will either have to be put on hold or you have to hope that your martyrdom will make a difference and will be worth the grief of your loved ones. Confusion often occurs when you advise someone to avoid a potentially dangerous situation when it is their moral, ethical and legal right to put themselves at risk. I see no conflict between being actively opposed to prejudice and yet advising someone to avoid a certain area at a certain time. My advice is not a command and it does not reflect my opinion on what should be. I think a law-abiding and honest individual should be able to set foot anywhere in the world without fear of being robbed, kidnapped, tortured and murdered. But sadly, there are many parts of the world where that is unavoidable should you decide to visit without taking the right precautions. There are places in the so-called civilised world where individuals will be pestered, bullied and attacked due to their race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, non-religion, culture or any number of irrational reasons. Long-term self-protection has a number of ways to eliminate these places without putting an individual at risk of physical harm. Short-term self-protection instructs us to best avoid such areas. The aggressive-looking man who just entered the bar and has flicked his glare on you for some reason has no right to make you feel threatened. You should not feel the need to leave as early as possible, or, if he engages in a dialogue, to adopt an insincere behaviour that will make him reconsider the violence that's probably on his mind. However, the reality might be that this person sees you as a target for his anger and frustrations. 
He doesn't care about your rights. In his world, there is justification for his violent intent. You and your kind are responsible for his misery and anger, and your actions will either further reinforce this justification or allow him another justification for not being violent. In the long term, you can push for more bars, pubs and restaurants to be part of a community-based watch scheme that creates a safer environment for patrons. You might wish to donate or participate in a charity that actively deals with the underlying issues that create such people as the bully in your bar. However, in the short term, you need to be looking to best avoid such individuals in these particular circumstances. If confronted by him, you will need to modify your natural mannerisms to reduce the chances of him deciding to become violent towards you. This might be through passivity of some kind, deception or assertion. If his behaviour indicates that violence is unavoidable, you need to be prepared to act decisively and effectively in order to efficiently remove this immediate threat with minimal repercussions. As a self-protection teacher, I see it as my responsibility to teach individuals immediate skills that will best ensure their survival. Again, I refer back to the first aid course. The first aid teacher will always prioritise the safety of the first aider before any help is administered to a patient. The self-protector defends themselves not just out of self-interest, but for the sake of their loved ones and people they have a responsibility to. I use this as a motivator for the most squeamish of students who rightly assert they would most likely allow a predator to do what they want, even to the point of killing them, and fight back by any means necessary. Lack of experience, training, or the will to fight often results in the victim freezing under pressure. As Archicullus once famously said, we don't rise to the level of our expectations we fall to the level of our training. I often find that the attitude of the squeamish student can be changed when I explain that they have an obligation to others to fight back, be it their child, their partner, their parents, or even future victims who might be saved by their actions. In the latter instance, we might see a connection with long-term self-protection. However, I also understand that by saying this, I might contradict another often rarely discussed area of self-protection training, that is, the protection of others. Neither law nor common sense will argue with someone's decision not to intervene in an act of criminal violence, if that violence isn't directed at them. This might be another exceptional situation where long-term self-protection justifiably overrides short-term. Many people choose to train in self-protection or martial arts to defend their loved ones. After all, your loved ones often define your life, and that is what you're seeking to preserve in the first place. Furthermore, in line with first aid motivations, one might see their civic or moral responsibility to intervene on behalf of a hapless stranger. Personally, I find this to be a very noble and a fair argument for long-term self-protection. Self-protection courses should include elements of bodyguarding and training to protect others. However, should you decide to intervene in a situation, you should do following the same procedures as you would do in your own interpersonal situation. So, uh, in most instances, you will probably not need to actually physically be involved. Rather, it will be more a case of alerting the authorities, alerting other people, uh, using dialogue. There's a number of other different things that can be done before you decide to actually get yourself involved in a physical fight uh, to save somebody else. Jeff Thompson's Dead or Alive addresses this issue. Quote, It's not to say either that you should not help others who may be in distress. Even then, you should be very wary. And if you do act, do not expect help or sympathy from the police in the aftermath, because you're very unlikely to get it. This might sound a little cynical to many, but believe me, I've had a lot of experience of how these things can go drastically wrong. Phoning the police may be a better alternative than trying to tackle a guy you've noticed trying to steal a car. Recently, a friend of mine intervened in an argument between a young lady and her rather irate boyfriend. 
For his troubles, he had his right bicep severed to the bone. He was attacked by the boyfriend and the woman he was trying to help, leaving him with a permanent disability. To add to his woe, the police took him to court and charged him with assault on the irate boyfriend. He endured a year of physical and mental discomfort before the case came before a court and he was finally cleared. I admired him for trying to help out the lady, but he walked into a situation blind. So look before you leap. End quote. Moving back onto short-term self-protection, a good part of my teaching that especially came out of my teaching children was the need to recruit direct and immediate help against violent offenders. The bystander effect is a known group psychological phenomena that is often misunderstood. There are videos of various situations involving a victim being harmed or in a state of distress where onlookers simply fail to help them. The regular response from viewers of these videos, including martial arts teachers, is that society has degraded, either courage or compassion has, de has degenerated, and we're all on our way to an apathetical frailty. In truth, there is ample evidence that people have and continue to care about each other. From the Blitz attack of World War II in the UK to the 9-11 atrocities in the US to any number of natural disasters across the world, we have seen widespread examples of communities actively helping one another. What happens in the case of the bystander effect is that the onlookers collectively do not know what to do and naturally disperse responsibility across the herd. The more people present witnessing a crisis occurring, the less likely anyone will intervene. We see similar things happening with our fellow mammals on nature programmes. Think of the amount of times you've witnessed a zebra or an antelope be taken down by hunting lions when the rest of the herd could have made short work of the predators if they'd only just teamed up on them. But instead, they just obeyed their flight instincts. Then think of the odd time you've seen when small groups of prey animals have decided to fight off a predator when one of their own is in trouble. A similar thing happens with people. Smaller numbers of people tend to act as there is less responsibility to disperse and the cry for help becomes more personal. Herds can also be recruited once they're given instruction. This is a really important area to teach on self-protection courses. Understanding herd behaviour is a big part of survival. Good self-protection is based on effective strategies and tactics. A good strategist or tactician chooses their battles intelligently whenever they can. The decision to act or not act, or to act in a certain way, will always be dictated by a judgment call of some sort. A good strategist or tactician chooses their battles intelligently whenever they can. The decision to act or not act, or to act in a certain way, will always be dictated by a judgment call of some sort. Choosing one's battles might translate to what is the best response to the confrontation in question. You choose not to fight because fighting can be safely avoided, or you choose to fight because if you don't, you have put your fate in the hands of a violent predator. Having made the choice to intervene to save another, you might choose to fight because you believe your actions can save the victim, or you might choose a less direct tactic because you do not believe your intervention will be helpful. The chaotic nature of violence requires a strong sense of adaptability. We know there is a biological impulse to avoid violence, or to be violent if we deem it necessary for our survival. Whether anyone wants to admit it, the average person looks to learn a system of combat for their own self-protection on some level. There can be some confusion regarding the nature of good self-protection education that might be worth expanding on in a future podcast. Suffice to say, in this episode, we just need to clarify what a prospective student really requires. I would always advise that a beginner to martial arts learn some form of basic self-protection first to disentangle all their perceptions about violence. However, there are plenty of people who simply just want to get involved with the ritual of combat, be it in sport, in art, in performance, or a certain type of athleticism. There's nothing wrong in this pursuit, so long as no one is being misled. 
If not learning self-protection is the true desire of the student or teacher, I do not see there to be any point in fighting a battle for self-protection. Good self-protection and good martial arts starts with honesty to oneself. I believe all training should also begin with clarification, which is often the best weapon in the fight against confusion. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Either way, I'd be very grateful to receive some feedback. Please be gentle, as this is my first time, I'm still learning the ropes. If you'd like to rate me or publish a nice review of this show, please do so via iTunes or any of the other popular podcast sharing sites. Please get in contact with any questions or with ideas on future podcast episodes. I think it's important at this stage to point out that I'm a big podcast fan and I've been dying to start my own show. Some of you may be aware I have a rather unusual background. Prior to training in martial arts, I grew up on the traditional travelling circus. As a child, my mother brought me up on audiobooks. This was largely due to the fact that she couldn't always read to me at bedtime, especially with all the work that went on when the show was moving. So I ended up devouring a wide range of different stories. I never grew out of the habit of wanting to listen to audiobooks, and these days I find it to be a great way to fill in dead time. When podcasts first became popular, I jumped on them straight away and have subscribed to hundreds of hours of broadcasting. However, I've never been very technologically minded, and so it took a lot of time for me to eventually get to this stage. I feel I have to thank a few people for inspiring me to take the plunge. I'm fortunate to be friends with people who are extremely talented in this broadcasting world, even if they have set the bar so ridiculously high that I'm not sure I'll ever be able to follow their act. T.W. Smith of the excellent Kung Fu podcast puts together an excellent show that comes with my highest recommendation. He has also very kindly focused some of his episodes on articles I have written. I'm grateful to his support and encouragement. My biggest debt of gratitude goes towards my very good friend, Ian Abernethy. His podcast is extremely entertaining and educational. Ian sets a superb standard in all things martial arts related, and I'm very lucky to have had his encouragement. As I said in the intro, please don't forget to check out the show notes, where there are various references for the material covered, and check out the website, clubchimera.com. That is club, spelt C-L-U-B-B, Chimera, spelt C-H-I-M-E-R-A dot com, where you'll find a huge amount of material, including a regular blog that reports on every lesson I teach, plus various essays, articles and reviews I've written over the years. You can also check out the various services I offer and courses I teach, as well as links to my books, the Club Chimera Facebook page and the YouTube channel. Next episode, I'm intending to cover lip service and incongruity in self-protection, as well as advice on choosing a good self-defense class. Thanks again for listening.